Welcome back to the Come Follow Me Book of Mormon Central podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Hello. Good to be with you and nice to have others here too. So we have three questions we always start out with. Um, How does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? How does this help me live a more Christ-like life? And today we're covering Ruth and the first three chapters of Samuel. And the Book of Ruth is my favorite book outside of Isaiah. I, I love this book. There's so much here. And the prophetess Hannah is such a great woman in my life that I named one of my children after her. <laughs> and I, my, she's my great-grandmother's name, too. It's it's fabulous. I'm thrilled to be talking about both of these two great women. Um, I really feel like this book, uh, starting with Book of Ruth and then carrying on to First Samuel, shows God's hands in the righteous people's lives. But, you know, it comes right out of the time period of the judges. The book of Ruth fits into all these wicked cycles of pride and and sin and apostasy. Uh, Here we have an example of a family who, for some reason, left. And it says that, you know, we'll get that when we get into the text. But it's interesting to see it. I think it's a fabulous story to show types of Christ. I think uh, it shows that another title of this book could be A King is Coming, because at the very end, they give that little genealogy. And that, to me, is the whole reason why they wrote the book, is to show you that through this line is where we're going to get our king. And it's not just David. It's our Messiah. It's going to be Jesus Christ. And Ruth is one of those four women that Matthew mentioned. And I think Ruth is Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, um, where he mentions her name in the text as a one of the ancestors of our Savior, or ancestors of Joseph, who adopts the Lord. It's not an ancestor of our Savior, but it is the genealogy of Joseph, who then adopts legally Jesus. The other thing that I really want to look at before we jump to the text is how beautifully it's crafted. It's really a piece of of beautiful artwork. The parallelisms and the opposites, you know, the book begins with this tragedy and death and famine and departing from Israel. And then it ends with returning to Israel and joy and new life and the birth of a son. Um, So that's lovely in its craftsmanship, but it's also lovely in its wordplay. And I, it's hard to read sometimes in King James to see all that. So we'll have to remember to point out some of those that are just beautiful. But I think one of the best themes of this book is just this everyday of life of righteous people and converts coming into the tribe and the tent of Israel expanding to include its neighbors. So all the other books, starting with Joshua and Judges, are destroying their neighbors. And First Kings will do the same and Second Kings will do the same. But this book includes their neighbors. They convert them. They bring them back into Israel. So it's gathering Israel in a, in a much better way. I think I, I like that theme and just put it a, dif- a different way. This idea of an individual righteous living family, a family yeah. within the sea of turmoil and unrighteousness, right? Yeah, it's beautiful. It has such an impact. It's a little pearl. Of, it has such it, an impact. David, right here. the Savior, comes through this lineage. And it's a legacy, also uh, building on that too, this legacy of faith. You know? Yes. And that's exactly um, what the children of Israel are trying to do. Yeah. And I feel like um, we're not—righteous women are not um, foreign in the Old Testament. You know, we've got these fabulous examples of, of, of 
the prophetess Deborah and Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and um, Leah and uh, we could just keep going. But Ruth and Naomi and actually um, Orpah as well all seem to be very good examples. I guess we better jump into the text. What do you think? Do yeah, you, anything do else it. you want to do? Is well, so let's set some context. So uh, obviously there's some Moab and famine. So, so and this okay. is happening at the same let's time as Judges. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so the same the time period of the Judges, we don't know exactly when it fits in, but it's before 1000 um, BCE. And it, it, famines are common in this area. These people are living in Bethlehem. And so we assume that they are um, from Judah and they um, um, takes his wife and two little boys, Mahalan and um, Chilean, and leaves this area of the famine and goes across the Jordan and south of the little ways into the land of, of Moab. But Moab is one of their enemies. And I, I, can't, I just looked it up. I counted these. It, they are called Israelites' enemies, even though they've been killed at different times. You know, different cities of Moabites have been destroyed. We still are calling them enemies. Numbers 22 through 25. Judges chapter 3, chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 8, 2 Kings chapter 3, 13 and 24, 1 Chronicles 18, 2 Chronicles 20, Isaiah 11. And I just stopped there. I thought, okay, that's that's far enough. I, you know, down until 700, you know, three, at least three or 400 years after this time, they are still called enemies and they've been called enemies for at least 300 years before this time. So um, the fact that they go to enemy territory is a little bit peculiar, but we are just told that there's food there and they're hungry. And we also know that the 12 tribes went to enemy territory to get food there. So I shouldn't be that shocked, I guess, over this. But they appear to still be living the law of Moses, except for the fact that they marry, these two boys grow up, their two sons grow up and marry um, Moabitess women because they're living there. But it appears that the Moabitess women's at least one of them is thoroughly converted. Um, and so after 10 years of marriage, both the sons, all three men in their lives die. And we're not told the source of the death. Um, but I don't know if it was the famine that caused the infertility, but there are no offspring yet. And it says they were married 10 years. So that's a little strange. And under the normal um, love right law, these women would be able to have the opportunity to um, marry siblings or other men in the family and raise up seeds to their husbands. But um, poor Ruth says, you know, this is really hard for me. I'm just looking here at chapter um, 1, verse 13. It grieveth me much for your sakes, but I'm not going to be able to bear any more children. And even if I would, would you wait around until they grew up and were able to, you know, you'd be too old then. You know, I mean, she just says, this is ridiculous for you guys to, I'm going home. You go home. This is ridiculous. I'm not staying. I don't want to stay here. I'm going back home. And um, she seems a, a little bit, I don't want to say bossy, but you just sort of wonder if, because they say, no, 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 we'll go with you. But Naomi is really stubborn about this. You know, don't do it. And so her her daughter-in-law, go, one goes home, um, Orpah goes home, but Ruth gives this one of the most beautiful poetic phrases in all of scripture that I hope can be put to music by some good musician, entreat me not to leave thee, nor to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and whither thou lodgest, I will lodge, and thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And continuing on to verse 17, and where thou diest, I will die, 
and there will I be buried. You know, this is the same traditional covenant-making idea that you are buried with your fathers. And um, Abraham bought that gravesite, and everybody wanted to be buried right there. They even brought back Joseph's bones. And did Isaac or Jacob asked specifically, let's please be buried together. And he has Leah there, and everybody's there with the family. And in Nauvoo, I don't know if you remember those sermons by Joseph Smith in Nauvoo where he talks about this, but he says, you'd be buried where you're your family is because you're going to rise up in the resurrection. He said, I've seen it in vision. You're going to rise up where you went down. Um, and I don't know exactly what that means for everyone who um, isn't able to have that kind of a, a burial, but um, certainly in this beautiful situation, it gives us the commitment of sweet Ruth and um, her commitment and conversion to the God of Abraham and to her mother-in-law are empowering just empowering. This stands out to me the most. And this is why this book is written, I think, for this this kind of verse, right? Yeah. You know, oh, this yes. is a dedication. Yeah, yeah. And whoever wrote it, whether it was Samuel, like some suggest, or, or others, um, the poetry is just exquisite. And um, as we watch this um, entering into the promised land, I'm now down to chapter 1, verse 20. Naomi introduces herself with a new name. She goes back to Bethlehem. Um, and says, call me bitter or Mara. Right. You know, I mean, she is in serious mourning. She feels like God is, it's been a hor horrific um, time, but there is hope because it's the harvest. It's the spring. And this becomes a very important theme of fruit that's going to be given. And the fruit that will be born will be the new king or the ancestors of the new king. And it's just so beautifully written. And we're introduced to these other characters, these other main characters in chapter two. Um, Naomi had a kinsman in her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Amalek, and his name was Boaz. And he becomes, I think, a Christ-like figure. He yes. is one who redeems them. In fact, the word that is used as, um, I guess we'll come to that in a few verses, but um, he is a Christ-like figure. He's someone who has plenty of food. He's generous, and he gives not only food but protection and safety, and he encourages his workers, his servants, to help out Ruth and um, encourages them to abide here, stay here with us. We'll take care of you. You know, he's, it's a beautiful figure. But the interesting thing for me is how Ruth is always introduced. Once she's now in the promised land— Almost every time she's mentioned, it says, Ruth the Moabitess. You know, Ruth the enemy. You know, I... You know, it is a point of emphasis, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's over and over. And when writing is so difficult, I don't think they repeat things unless they're, they're trying to really hit something home. Mm. It reminds me a little bit of Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, you know. Capulet and Montague. I mean, she's the enemy. Or during the Cold War, you know, this was a Russian or something. You know, it, it just is really amazing. But the numbers and the generosity go hand in hand as we look at this gleaning process. Do you remember what the gleaners were in the ancient? Do you remember how Moses allowed, don't ever pick That's from right. the edges so yeah. that the poor can come and have a place to glean? And glean it's, yeah. it's showing that they are living the law of Moses in this little town of Bethlehem. Um, they are providing for the poor. It, to me, it's a law of consecration kind of lifestyle. I love it. It's which then... Even go, during a famine. Well, that was 
10, at least 10, if not 20 years ago. I mean, they've been in Moab for a long time. So the famine was before they left. And so at the beginning of the book, it's the famine. And now we're in the, they're returning and there's lush fruit and they're soon going to be fruit of the womb as well as fruit of the vine. So um, it's, it's no longer famine. But um, in verse 17, they talk about how much um, she's able to glean and she takes it to her mother-in-law. And it's this enormous amount. So I looked it up um, and we don't know exactly because an ephah is a basket size, not necessarily weight size, but it appears to be between 29 and 50 pounds of barley that she's able to glean. You know, this is going to be a great source of sustenance for herself and her mother-in-law for Ruth and Naomi. And Naomi gives full credit to God. Blessed be the Lord. This is verse 20. Blessed be the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and the dead. Um, great praise where praise should be due. And um, Naomi gets very excited when she finds out that this is a relative, because that means the Levite law can take place. But it seems to me like it's even more than the Levite law because chapter three and four um, add more to it. But Naomi is a good matchmaker and she uses her strengths in chapter three to say, okay, this is just following the law. I, I want you to go and propose. And a wonderful Ruth goes through with it, which that I must really- must have been so scary. Oh, Being amazing. constantly introduced as this Moabite. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. We tolerate you at the edge of our fields so you can glean. <laughs> Although Boaz has always been kind to her. Yeah, I don't know scary, if he was though. an old man because he's, he honors her and says, I'm glad that you haven't been going after the younger man when he, she approaches him. But there's temple symbolism here too. That it is so carefully crafted. It's just beautiful. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. So this is Naomi giving advice to her daughter-in-law. Wash thyself and anoint thee and put on thy clean garment. Um, and so she's in a state again of purification that you like to keep going back to before she goes before him. And she lays down beside him. And at midnight, um, he has um, awoken somehow and realizes that there's somebody there. And... Um, he honors her. He's not scared by it. And he calls her, in verse 11, a virtuous woman. But she says to him, um, spread your wings over me. Now, King James doesn't use that word. King James, in verse 9, says, spread your skirt over me. Right, verse 9. But yeah. I love the fact that it can also be translated as wing, because later on, Boaz says, I want to spread my wings. And it's a parallel word choice showing that um, they use these words of Boaz being virtuous and Ruth being virtuous. I like that Boaz clarif having a wing and <laughs> yeah. Ruth having a wing. It's just a I beautiful I like that connection. clarification because when I, when I think of spreading the wings and protection, I think of the parables that the Savior said, you know, how often I would have gathered thee or, uh, as or a hen, Lord as a hen, right? And so I see that. Um, as another type as of another Christ. As another type of Christ, right? As we've mentioned. And Boaz says in, in verse 12, um, I am a near kinsman, but there's one nearer than I. Now, this word kinsman is going back to this practice of a redeemer, or the Hebrew word go'ol. And it's the idea that I will redeem you from your um, state of widowhood. I will raise up seed to your past that we talked about with the Levite law. And the fact that it is 
called Redeemer should lighten our ears to what the role of our Savior is in our lives, that he will take us from a state of widowhood, of barrenness, of sorrow, and he will buy us back and give us fruit and restore us to a place of honor and restore us to a place where we can find nourishment and protection. Looking at it in the law of Moses um, just adds so much beautifulness. One of the commentaries I read by um, Dr. Rasmussen Rasmussen said that um, this is a common marriage proposal that she was, Ruth was actually proposing to him saying, um, it is your responsibility to, to take care of me. Would you please marry me? And then he says, you know, I, I honor you and you're a virtuous woman. I mean, he just totally builds her up. And I don't know, but I assume there is a generational difference here that he is an old man. If he's already wealthy and she is still um, in her early 30s or late 20s or something, you know, if they were married when I think they were married um, and they've been married 20 years, you know, she's probably 25 or 30 or something like that. Um, and he goes to the courtyard and makes sure that everything is legal and asks the next of kin if he'd like to redeem this land of Naomi's. This is chapter four. I love this. He goes to the next of kin and he says, um, would you like this land? Do you want to buy this land from Naomi? She's going to sell her husband's property. He said, oh yeah, I'll redeem it. I'll take the, pro- I'll take the land. Mm-hmm. And then when he says in verse five, you also have to have the Moabitess, you know? And then he says, no way. I'm not doing that. I'm not taking that Moabitess. Um, that'll, that'll, that'll interfere with my inheritance. So he wanted the land, but he didn't want the woman. And maybe he didn't want plural marriage. Um, whatever it was, he did not want it. Um, and so he's, in that day and age, they made their covenants by taking off the shoe, handing it to him. That's their legal sign there. I don't know if that meant they were illiterate or if that was just a practice because there were so many people that were illiterate. I assume that um, most of the law had was memorized, but they exchanged, they, he hands him his shoe and he gets to um, marry our wonderful Ruth, who is a great convert from the enemy. And as they are married, we're told that wonderful Ruth conceives the um, father or the grandfather of King David. It's just amazing how the Lord um, has a Moabitess in this great line. It it sort of reminds you that um, the Lord always intended for the promised people to have wild olive branches mixed in with the local olive branch, according to the allegory of the olive tree in Jacob chapter 5. You know, he always planned on having... um, those who have ears to hear, please come join. Those who have hearts that are soft, please come join. For me, this this is a very clear scriptural reference to the uh, the power of the covenant in living righteously as opposed to being born. Oh, into that it, right? we've this, heard over and adoption, over and over. Yes, right. Because because again, like the, the blue has, blood is not good enough. That's not good enough. We saw that with Samson like last week. Yeah. We, we we will hear about this. You know, um, when the Savior talks about the uh, seed of Abraham, right? You know, even stones, right? Um, it's about it's about the doing. It's about your heart. And even this Moabitess, right? Your enemies can have good hearts. And I also think it ties into this idea of gathering of Israel can also be the gathering to Israel rather than just of Israel. Um, 
I want to just share one from the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 21.1. I shall gather in from their long dispersion my people, O house of Israel, and shall establish again among them my Zion. And they were establishing a Zion society. They're living some sort of a communal society here in Bethlehem at this time. They're sharing their foods. They have foods for the poor. And now the Lord is going to raise up a king out of these loins and... Um, Unfortunately, it's 12 generations down uh, that we've now been tracing, but um, our wonderful King David and our and Joseph come from Ruth. They don't come, though, from Hannah. Hannah is not mentioned, but should we jump Let's over and on, start 1 Samuel? Samuel right. Yeah, this is later on in the week, but this delightful book of 1 Samuel is finally back to a prophetic leadership. Right. I'm so, so happy that we get so this. So we had Joshua, oh, who was a prophet, prophet. warrior. Yeah, so Captain then we've Moroni got 250 years, 300 years in the book of Judges, and then now. So, um, I, But we did have the prophetess Deborah. We did. So I assume that there were others, small ones interspersed there, but for some reason, we have been without a prophet for a long time. For all of Israel, maybe maybe local. Yeah, for a couple hundred years at least. Um, I don't know exactly when it is, but a couple hundred years they've been without a prophet. And also, this prophet is a unifying effect. As we look at the whole book of Samuel, um, it starts out, of course, with the story of this wonderful, miraculous birth again, and then the um, childhood of Samuel, and then there's an arc narrative, and then the story of Samuel becoming the not only the prophet but the judge and unifying Israel that way. And then you have the calling of the king and the election uh, and rejection of Saul and then the rise of David. And that's all in this wonderful book of Samuel. So I sort of see if if Ruth is, um, here comes a king, Samuel is, here is the king, you know. Mm, and, I like that. Um, but it, still, they are rejecting God when they are choosing another king. So it's it's tragic that way. But um, again, we have another miraculous birth. Right. <laughs> All of these, I think, are types of Christ as we see the barrenness permeate the Old Testament text. And Hannah is praying for this son and her husband, Elkanah, um, has another wife who is able to produce children. But it sounds to me like Panaha, it, it, unfortunately, is perhaps referred to as the enemy of Hannah. And mm. I don't know if that's self-imposed or what. I don't want to throw stones at anybody, but it it sounds like it's a very difficult situation there. And every year when they go from Rama to where the tabernacle is, Hannah just sits and bawls and cries her eyes out and fasts and doesn't mm. eat. And her good husband's trying to give her a double portion of the sacrifice. Remember, you get most of the animal back right. for a thank offering. And so it's just sad to see her in such sorrow that um, I feel like the message is still God will make the impossible possible. And that's what we see here um, as in the future, God's leaders are often come out of these miraculous births and the God will respond to the faith and prayers of his righteous women. And that's exactly what we're seeing right here. I think so much about, you know, especially just talking about Ruth, you know, they didn't, they didn't, I mean, Boaz has always talked about it, but they didn't name the book after him. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and obviously Samuel is so important. They didn't name the book after him. But, but we starts, only have a couple of verses Hannah. on Hannah. We yeah. don't, it's not like Ruth where there was a whole bunch. But she is able to get that wonderful um, prophecy from Eli. But 
you know, poor Eli, his sons are are awful. We we learn later on, not this week's readings, but later on, um, what bums his sons are, and they they actually um, abuse their roles as priests and take bribes and sleep around and everything else. And so, I guess um, drunkenness was something that Eli knew about because Eli assumes that sweet Hannah is drunk, and she says, "No, I'm just praying, <laughs> and um, right. I'm just sobbing my hair is out yet." And and I th- I trust that Eli was inspired by the Lord to say, whatever you're asking, the Lord will give you. Mm. And so she goes home and the Lord opens her womb and and this wonderful little baby comes out. But I my heart just, it, again, I wonder about their vows. She says, I promise you to the Lord. And as soon as he is weaned. So I wanted to know if they maybe did night feedings up till age 12 or something, you know. So I tried yeah, to look sure. into when do you wean a child? And in the ancient world, people would hire a wet nurse for three years. The contract was usually three years. Um, we see that in Egypt. We see that in Mesopotamia. We see, and there's a lot of evidence that the wet nurses that the um, wet nurses could also work for two years. But we don't see that Samuel is eight years old when he goes to start working for Eli. We see him as a three, four, or five-year-old kind of age when he starts to work for Eli. He's a very young child. And I thought, is this a help or a hindrance in the temple? I mean, you're (laughs) going to go help in the tabernacle. I mean, is this a help to have a toddler around or a hindrance? Depends on the kid. It depends. Well, obviously, uh, Samuel was a man of God. And the exact miracle of the timing of this birth meant that he had the body and the spirit and the soul that the Lord wanted this yeah. child to have. Yeah. Uh, our birth, it uh, the bodies we receive are often um, t- timed by the Lord when we arrive, um, if we will allow that to happen. And our sweet young Samuel is left with Eli and his mother comes every year with a cloak. I thought, how far away is this? How often did the mother come? And when I looked up on the, the maps, it doesn't look like it's that far. It's a two or three day journey. So why doesn't she come more often? Well, the text says um, the Lord blesses her with other children. I see. Yeah. So Three sons and two daughters. busy yeah. with those um, little boys and girls running around. But I love the description of her making a cloak for him every year and bringing it. And I just hope that there were many more trips than just one. But if Samuel is the author... This is his memory. Perhaps there was only one a year. I don't know. Um, I'm looking forward to talking to Hannah in heaven as we hear this beautiful story. I want to testify of um, the way that when you mentioned earlier that we wanted to bring this to Christ, um, of the parallels between Hannah and Mary. Yes. In chapter 2, Hannah sings this beautiful praise, and it's a mosaic of Old Testament phrases. I mean, excuse me, it's a mosaic of rejoicing. But when Mary is visiting her relative, Elizabeth, she also spouts this beautiful poetry, this beautiful um, mosaic of Old Testament scriptures. And I see Hannah being a type of Mary here. And so I was reading in um, Dr. Raymond Brown's book, The Birth of the Messiah, and he even has separated out some of these verses. And I'd just love to share some of them with you. When Mary says, 
My soul doth magnify the Lord. We call it the Magnificat in Catholicism. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Magnificat after magnify, you know, after the Latin word here. When Mary recites this beautiful phrase, she's actually reciting some of this hymn from Hannah. So I wonder if some of these hymns from Santa, Hannah had been passed down and were part of their lit- liturgy, a part of their songs, their hymnals. Um, look at second, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. So we have the, mm-hmm. my spirit rejoiceth in the Lord. Here she has, my heart rejoiceth in the Lord, and mine horn is exalted in the Lord because I rejoice in thy salvation. If you skip down again, another rejoice. And then in verse, uh, back in chap- Luke chapter 1, verse 48, um, Mary says, For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. And then as we look at Samuel in this same beautiful hymn, verses 10 and 11, And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look upon the affliction of thy handmaiden and remember me and not forget thine handmaiden, but will give me thine handmaiden a male child or a man child, and I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. The lowly estate of Hannah, who is referred to as a handmaiden, is parallel to the lowly estate of this poor young girl, Mary, up in Nazareth. Um, anyway, just beautiful parallels. I can keep going. There are several more. Luke chapter 1, um, he had showed strength in his arm. This is verse 51 to 53 in Luke. He has showed strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of the heart. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent away empty. These are all statements coming from Hannah. This is um, Hannah's beautiful song, verse 7 and 8 of Samuel chapter 2. The Lord maketh the poor, and the rich he maketh. He bringeth low, and he lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and he lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill, and he has set them on the princes and made them to inherit the thrones of glory. You know, it's just beautiful. Um, And I love the idea that... um, high praises of women were passed down and perhaps known or at least similar revelation was given and inspired to others later as they crafted that um, beautiful text of the Magnificat. So Hannah's praises um, are ultimately to the kingdom of Israel, to the Lord, but I think she's referring to the Messiah. You know, she talks about the horn of his anointed one. Anointed means Messiah. And then in contrast to that, we get these next verses on Eli's wicked sons. (laughs) They're just a disaster. Yeah, it's a quick turn. Well, he's got these two stories running parallel because we get to go back to Samuel at the temple by verse 18, but you just get a feel. I think by having the wicked sons and then Samuel side by side, the author is trying to show the contrast of a bad example and a good example. This is a Laman and Lemuel... Nephi. Nephi, yeah. both born of a prophet. Yeah. And right? we also see that um, Eli was not, Eli's children were not worthy to take the place and to continue on the line as the high priest. And so it's going to be given to someone else, just like it was um, the way that they crafted the book of Genesis and Exodus. We saw um, that the Jacob's oldest sons were not worthy of the birthright. So it was given to Joseph. That's right. We see this here with Eli too, in those awful verses. 
What's interesting to this one is this this follows the idea of Ruth of being adopted in. I mean, Samuel wasn't one of his sons. Was, Correct. He wasn't a Nephi. He Correct. was third born or something like that. He yeah. was he, he was someone he, given he to the Lord by miracle. And by, right. uh, as you just had quoted earlier, many are called, but few are chosen. That's and right. why are they chosen? Because they follow the Lord. And starting in verse 18, Samuel wore a little linen ephod. You know, he's wearing this little priestly garment as he's going about doing the works of God. And um, I love the fact that in Luke, he has orchestrated or or written up the birth narratives to be parallel. He has John the Baptist's birth paralleled to Jesus's birth. And they are both in those parallel accounts quoting Hannah's account of Samuel. Look at this. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26. And the child Samuel grew on in favor both with the Lord and also with men. Does right. that ring a bell that to does. you? That does. Yeah. From Luke. So when John the Baptist is growing up, Luke chapter 1, verse 80, it says, and the child grew. So he's just quoting First Samuel here. And waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day he was showing unto Israel. But when he's talking about Jesus, it continues on and quotes Samuel again. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. You know, it's the exact same word. So Luke is trying very hard to show little Samuel as a type of Christ. He's going to be raised up for his whole life to serve God. So Hannah is like Mary and little Samuel is a type of Christ. And from his birth on, he is dedicated to the Lord. This is not just a prophet. This is a type of Christ. I thought of this exact thing when you were saying like, you know, what's it like for a toddler walking around? It's like, well, the Savior didn't have much of a truck. Trouble walking around as a child in the temple, right? Yeah. Well, he was 12 he in was the 12, temple, not true. three or four or five. <laughs> and, you know, uh, but I think of that, right? You know, yeah. that, that, it's uh, beautiful, isn't it? Especially as we turn on to chapter three, as we go into the um, this hearing the voice of the Lord. And one reason why this chapter three meant so much to me is because our prophet, ever since he was called, um, in 2018, in that first conference report, when he prayed to know what the people needed to hear, and he heard they need to know that the Lord has more to speak to them. They need to learn to seek personal revelation more. And then almost every year since then, the same theme has been brought back. The Lord wants you to ask for more revelation in your life. He wants to you to seek revelation and follow the promptings of the Spirit. And that's exactly what we're taught here. This is how the Lord will speak to you. And if you want to learn um, how to hear the Lord's voice, you either go to the Doctrine and Covenants section 6, 8, 10, uh, uh, 9, and 10, or you go here to 1 Samuel chapter 3, and you respond when you hear the voice of the Lord. Here am I. Yeah, let's, start, let's start with verse 1. Okay. Do, do you want to read that one? Yeah, sure. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Yeah. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. That's why I said I don't think there's been a prophet for a long time. It was precious in those days. It was unique. It was rare. Or other translations. Um, and then he comes running into Eli. Here I am. And finally, by verse 10 is where Eli says, okay, okay. The Lord's trying to talk to you. And um, I think we got to give credit to Eli here. There hasn't been a prophet for so long. 
But he's still the high priest. He's still the, still the leader of the, the spiritual leader. nature of the kingdom. And so he, but he's there recognizing, okay, this is special, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. This is not, this is not normal, right? This is not, hasn't happened for hundreds of years, but. And I also thought we could liken this unto ourselves where we're told to answer, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And I almost feel that way um, about, you know, we've just had general conference or even our, our state conferences, our, our sacrament meetings, our, our scripture study. And when we begin our scripture study, shouldn't we begin, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. You know, maybe we should even do this every time we're on our prayers. When we kneel down, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. You know, we want to hear the Lord. Can we follow this example that Eli taught the young Samuel? to acknowledge that we want to hear more from the Lord and ask to hear from him. But then comes the sad, sad, sad news that this young boy, however old he is by now, and perhaps he is a, a, a decade old, I don't know, but this young boy is told that he will take over Eli's position, that Eli's sons are not worthy, and the Lord in part, blames Eli for not chastising them or for allowing them to serve as unworthy servants, for not asking them to leave um, the service of the Lord. The King James is hard. I, I read other translations on this one, but um, thy sons have made themselves vile and he has restrained them not. That's verse 13, verse 13. And um, I just feel like I'm just barely getting to the point where I'm to the parenting adults. <laughs> you know, my kids are growing up yep. and they do not like it when I point out their faults and, or something that they could do better. And I feel for Eli. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you don't like it when your parents uh, interpret your behavior um, yes negatively no. as well. Yes and no. If they're right, I'm just like, yeah, you're, you're humble right. enough. Yeah, Good for you're you. right. <laughs> I don't like it, <laughs> but I listen. <laughs> uh, so, so I, I kind of... We see that, but this goes back to a question we had, um, you know, last week, which was, you know, why is the Lord so harsh with his people when they're wicked? Because I mean, it's so a, important because he's, he's merciful. Yes, because he is merciful. He's a yeah. gardener. He's trying to teach us to grow. It's all about our growth. He knows what's best for us. Um, don't blame God for your hard times. It's for your own good. He's. It's because you're not learning in any other way. That's genuine. I, um, yeah. And then verse 19, that part about Samuel growing is beautiful, but... He grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. And when I first read that, I thought it meant Samuel, let none of the Lord's words fall to the ground. But when I opened up the Hebrew and went back, it means the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. The, the Hebrew is quite clear there. It tells you which is the antecedent. And um, I... I want to use it in my life that I'm one who will not let any of the Lord's words fall to the ground. But I assume that our prophet is saying things that the Lord will also make sure are fulfilled because he is the prophet of God. And maybe we should end in verse chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh. Um... So prophets see God, and we have another prophet in the land. And earlier it said that everybody from Dan to Beersheba recognized Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. And I hope that the world over, from Sapporo, Japan, around <laughs> uh, down to um, 
Palo Alto, California, across to Boston and around to um, Ukraine. May we know there's a prophet in the land. Yeah. Do you want to add anything else? I just, I love how the Lord works through the small and simple means. This is what shows up to me with Ruth and with Hannah and with Samuel. Um, and then with Samuel, this was merited. I mean, he was not born. He was not, he was not, um, you know, sort of a king. Uh, I mean, there's nothing other than a humble mother's prayer that in a, in a fulfillment of a, of a vow. Amen. And he earned it. You know, Amen. everyone in the land, for hundreds of years, there wasn't a prophet and everyone recognized him as one. Amen. Um, that's totally the agree. Lord's doing and, and Samuel's humility. Oh, so. John, that's terrific. So nice to talk through the scriptures with you. Yeah. I love it. And next week, we'll continue on with the rest of Samuel. Yes. God bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye.